So welcome to the From Poverty to Power podcast. With me today, I have William Shamali, who's got uh, an intriguing job title, Global Prote Protection Cluster Coordinator, which is one of those terribly important sounding job titles that no one outside the humanitarian sector understands. So I think, William, welcome and maybe explain who you are and what you do to begin with. Thanks, Duncan, and good, uh, good to be with you uh, today. Well, Protection is, is the heart and soul of, of a humanitarian action. It's basically uh, to make people, to make sure that people are, are safe and living in dignity in times of crisis. And uh, responding to issues related to safety and dignity when people are disappeared, detained, tortured, displaced, robbed of everything, uh, requires a lot of interventions to to prevent to 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 deal with survivors of sexual harassment and assaults and crimes and kids being taken by armed groups, and this collectivity of action from prevention to response to to actually telling the story and advocating requires a lot of actors to come together and to call, bring all these actors together in a place like Syria or Yemen or Venezuela. Today, uh, there is a UN coordination mechanism uh, that brings them together, and that is the protection cluster. We operate in about 30 countries around the world, and we bring together more than 1,000 partners, largely people working in their own country, local partners. And the job is, is to, 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 to make sense of this massive energy of multiple actors coming together and get some common push uh, to make things impactful for people who are stuck in these conflicts and, and disasters. Thank you. That sounds like a, something you've had to say many times over the last three years, because you're now, I mean, leaving, I believe. I am. I have uh, been in the current function for uh, for three years. Uh, three uh, years, uh, part of them were COVID years. Part of them were poverty years. Part of them were climate change years. Part of them were conflict and fighting years and uh, and uh, it's been a, a a a set of sprints in between marathons to uh, to coordinate this work wow okay three years sounds like plenty um so give me you know I, what i would really like is just an overview then so where are we at on protection uh, as a sort of humanitarian community so the protection uh, situation in the world is in bad shape. Uh, uh, today, the, the largest uh, driver of protection risks and people being unsafe and their dignity being hit the left, right and center is conflict uh, and human rights abuses. And uh, I feel that there is a lot of uh, uh, underlying factors and additional factors from COVID to, uh, to climate change, to, uh, to underdevelopment, bad governance, poverty, et cetera. But what we see on the front lines is very simple. It is conflicts, it is breaches of a humanitarian law, it is human rights abuses that are creating major uh, uh, risks and needs and uh, problems for people. And we count this year more than 150 million people in need of protection. Uh, of course, this is the highest ever year that we recorded uh, in this sense. And this is driven by new crises like Ethiopia, like Afghanistan, like Ukraine, uh, like Sudan, 
uh, but it's also driven by having no solutions to all the stubborn crises like Syria, like Yemen, like Congo, like the Sahel. Um, and uh, in this situation, uh, people are hit because of conflict, because of crimes. Uh, kids are separated from their families. Youth are taken to armed groups. Uh, sexual violence is endemic and used systematically as a weapon of war. People are driven out of their houses. But in addition to that, people are pushed to, uh, to make very difficult choices. I wouldn't even call them choices. You know, when you don't have food on the table, a lot of difficult things happen under the table. Uh, girls get married off for payment. Uh, kids drop out of school and are forced to, to, to slavery-like condition with armed groups or in, on the labor market. So you see people are hit first time by the conflict, then second time by all the socioeconomic meltdown that comes under uh, after it, that is pushing them to, to very difficult decisions, uh, that is increasing uh, the pro their problems. And this shield of self-protection, this shield of resilience is wearing off hit after hit in these communities. Um, so this is where we stand, and um, and we we must do better. I mean, I think when we had a little conversation before this podcast, just to sort of scope this out, and you said something very interesting, which is that you're a bit sceptical about going off on climate change or um, these underlying factors rather than tackling the symptoms, if you like, the, the conflict and the human rights. Could you just talk us through what your thinking is on that? Well... We're proud of in tackling the symptoms. People that are today um, survivors of uh, of rape by armed groups, kids that are today separated from their families and recruited into fighting, uh, families that are today pushed out of their houses into oblivion, they need help today. I get it that we need to address the underlying factors and we must, and we must put all our efforts there, but we need also immediate diplomatic attention, political attention, resources attention to address these symptoms because these people are in pain today. And not only that, then comes what I believe hurts the most, it's invisibility. Many of these people go through these layers of hits uh, wondering if anyone cares, if anyone knows, if they matter at all. And when we humanitarians are not standing by people in these darkest hours, then what are we doing? So do you think that, that the humanitarian system is a bit has a bit skewed towards these underlying factors then? And maybe these other things are not sexy enough, not, not interesting enough, the, 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 the daily grind of uh, of conflict and human rights abuses? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying we must, of course, focus on the underlying factors, but the narrative needs to be factual. Today's big problem remains conflict and human rights abuses. And of course, all these other factors are adding to it and must be addressed, but not on the expense of being and standing by people who are hurting today and are invisible. Okay, thanks, William. Um, so that's pretty grim. That's a pretty grim way to start. So um, let's move towards, I mean, you've been there three years. Um, you're highly respected. I mean, my Oxfam colleagues were glowing in their praise for what you've done and what you like to work with. 
um, and, and feel that the protection cluster has really moved on on things like women's rights and so on. Um, what have you seen change in the last three years? Uh, you know, and could you give some, maybe some overall picture and then maybe some specific examples of some, some good stuff that's happening? Um, talking about success or good in, in this field of work becomes day after day more remote to, to this. Even when we, uh, when we succeed in something, it's partial. It's 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 marginal almost, uh, but uh, uh, we have to keep telling some of the positive stories to keep rallying uh, people to 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 work in this field to support people in their darkest hours, and I've seen um, some areas of protection response really uh, becoming uh, predictable, becoming strong, having an impact on the ground when it comes to. Uh, uh, to working on uh, on uh, specific needs or risks for children in times of crisis. We see uh, in places like Syria, a much stronger uh, family reunification programs, bringing kids back to their family, much stronger engagement with armed groups and military to stop children's recruitment. Uh, in places like, uh, um, like Yemen, in places like South Sudan, uh, people who have been born in, in displacement camps who didn't have any legal identities, no, no hooks to get into educational system or to get into job markets. We have very strong programs that, uh, that have grown in giving people a legal identity uh, to, to slide into normality. We see a lot of uh, focus on, on addressing sexual violence. And uh, while I still believe it is our biggest, biggest failure, this is something that is on the top of the agenda of everyone, yet our impact in addressing it is, is so marginal in places like Ethiopia, in places like the Sahel of Africa, in Colombia, uh, in Syria, in Yemen. Um, the, the machinery that is trying to prevent sexual violence, it is standing by the survivors of sexual violence, giving them legal, uh, socioeconomic, uh, psychosocial uh, support. Uh, once this is identified, is, is a massive, impressive machinery. Uh, yet the, the, the impact against the needs is, is so marginal. But I see a lot of progress in this area. I also see very concrete progress in, in some of the material safety and protection, like mine action, uh, removing mines, removing explosives, uh, stuff that goes boom, basically, from the ground to allow people to go back to school, to go back to markets, to hospitals. Uh, there is a lot of work, a lot of investment and progress there. So I see this, uh, this push of a professional, dedicated, predictable machineries addressing different parts of protection uh, uh, functioning well. It has many organizations that are dedicated to that, many thousands of staff that are passionate and trying really to do their best. Um, but in a bigger sense, Duncan, I think humanitarian aid have shifted from a place where the main story was material needs 
such as people have lost their homes, people need food, people have their schools bombed, to a place where uh, dignity and, and and these elements of rights have become on the center, at the center of it. Uh, telling the story of what hurts most in a crisis uh, uh, is, um, is becoming uh, very protection anchored. If we read the media, if we listen to uh, to the plans, if we see where the budgets are going uh, of the humanitarian actors, definitely protection is gaining ground, and that's only um, only fair uh, because these are the things that are priority for uh, for people. Uh, over the last three years, we went from a global budget of protection work and programs on the front line from about four hundred fifty million dollars to we will close this year with about $1.4 billion. So the sector has grown in three years uh, with about billion dollars of projects on the front lines. Now- three times, is, three times bigger in yeah. three years. That's amazing. Now this is driven by growing needs. So the number of people in need is also growing. So maybe proportionally it's not as impressive, but the growth of the response is faster than the growth of the needs, but the, the gap remains significant, uh, and we need to keep uh, keep the pressure on. Can I just ask, like, the, the success stories you mentioned uh, just got me thinking, yeah, it's incredibly difficult what protection organisations are trying to do. You just sort of throw negotiating with armed groups, you know, in, 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 in Syria or wherever. Um, and one of the things I've been involved with is, is trying to do training for humanitarians on influencing, on their political skills, on their ability, rather than just delivering tents and blankets and food, but to actually change government policies. Because in most conflicts, the humanitarian sector is fairly marginal. It's actually, you know, they're domestic conflicts or conflicts between yeah. countries. Do you think the humanitarian sector has made progress on that, that political skill set, or is it still more comfortable delivering stuff in some way. Yes. Um, so I think it is fair to say that organizations uh, like the ICRC, like Geneva Call, like uh, UNHCR, WFP, NRC, Oxfam, I don't want to, to, to list, so to skip, uh, have definitely grown expertise in this diplomatic negotiations that allows uh, programs to operate on the ground in a, in a comprehensive way. However, out of the 150 million people today in need of protection, we collectively, local actors, international actors, everyone, UN, NGOs, we can at best access comfortably 50 million of them. Wow. So we're leaving 100 million without any decent chance to receive any comprehensive uh, support from our side. And what does that mean? That means, as you're saying, being able to be, to be in, in the communities, to monitor the situation, to talk to the communities, to the armed groups, to try and change behavior, to identify children that are being recruited or girls that are married off or uh, uh, survivors of sexual violence. That takes time, that takes trust, that takes presence uh, on the ground. And we see that 
there is a tendency to focus a humanitarian access negotiation on material delivery. So we count our access to Tigray or to Northwest Syria by the number of trucks that have come in. And these trucks are so crucial. I mean, they carry life-saving food and medicine, but it's not enough. So our collective uh, humanitarian country team advocacy style and approach and negotiation for the humanitarian access is skewed towards an access that, that makes uh, material aid go in, but not programs that are holistic from a protection sense to, to stay in and deliver. And that, uh, that brings us very naturally into the discussion on localization, because if, if you're prioritizing trust and understanding and knowledge and contacts, you're not going to go with white men in shorts. Um, you know, it's going to be local organizations, local stuff. How is how have you seen the localization, the need to localize response develop in your time at the GPC? We talk well about it. Uh, we've made some symbolic progresses uh, in terms of uh, our programs, for example, uh, our out of our global budget, 25% of our whole budget of the $1.4 billion go to local partners. And that's compared to our traditions and history and compared to other humanitarian sectors, it's a major achievement but we're far from where we should be. Uh, having this 25% coming out of the global, uh, the grand bargain was an was a important push, but we see our sector as to be fully driven by local actors. So we have 1,400 members across 30 operations. 90% uh, of these members are local organizations. So I do expect 90% of our budget to go to them. It's not we're still at 25%. And is that, so, let me just come back on that, the 25%, is that going to this kind of deep engagement, deep understanding, trust building, or are we, is the system creating kind of miniature versions of international organizations that are bringing stuff in? No, it is real. It is real engagement with armed groups. It is real connecting families. It's real uh, addressing sexual violence, it's real demining and, and mine action, it's real negotiation over land and bringing communities together uh, to start dialogue for return of displaced people. This is happening. Is it happening enough? No. But what I would like to, to flag here is that in this whole massive push for localization, which we've been really championing and uh, uh, and, and achieved what we achieved while we recognize that uh, the distance to the goal is still far. I am also on the protection front worried that international organization advocacy role might be hiding behind localization. Let me explain. There is, of course, a need for local actors to be in the community, to stay and deliver, to have use that local trust and be able to push things forward. But there are points in time where you need that international presence, that international pressure to tell men with guns that we are here to watch, to see, we're gonna report, we know what's happening. And we want to put that pressure on you to stop 
doing this. And I feel that after maybe a decade of bunkerization of international organization with a hit of COVID that really removed us from the field, we need a we need a wave of pushing us as international actors back into the villages, into the streets, into the camps, to take that advocacy role, not to stand in the face of local organizations who are delivering the actual projects and programs, but to be clearly, visibly, in a principled way, standing by people who are suffering from these different crimes. So I think we need... To, to balance that major need for more resources and more recognition of local leadership with more responsabilization of this uh, duty to tell the story and advocate with international pressure by international organizations. I mean, compared to delivering stuff, advocacy is fairly cheap. So it's actually a question of, of political priority more than resources, I think, in many cases, right? Advocacy is layers. Advocacy is talking to a checkpoint to tell them to stop harassing women and girls. And advocacy is talking to a community who believes that early marriage is normal and should continue and try to, to dialogue with them to stop that practice. And But also advocacy is to stop bombing and attacking uh, uh, people through rumors and physically and taking off their uh, their their houses and schools and so on. So I think we need all layers of advocacy and we need sometimes to, to do it behind closed doors, sometimes publicly, sometimes through capacity building, sometimes through naming and shaming. Um, and that is not cheap. That's political will, definitely, but that's time of individuals that need to to take these risks and these slow conversations and these uh, 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 these long uh, uh, changing behavior uh, engagement that uh, that requires uh, expertise and resources. So while it is hard to fundraise for it because it's not always so visible, uh, it is extremely uh, crucial to have it because, again, uh, circling back to my uh, opening sentence, it is the heart and soul of a humanitarianism to do these kind of uh, works. I have a question. I mean, do you think people working in protection realise how far they've come in terms of that overall budget, in terms of the increasing sort of centrality of protection to humanitarian work? Um Protection workers are uh, are advocates, are uh, activists. We come from an underdog mentality where uh, we believe people don't want to talk about our issues, don't want to talk about sexual violence and children recruitment and uh, and racism and uh, an ethnic interethnic conflict. So we come to the table with expecting that these things will be put under the carpet. Uh, we're not there. Uh, protection sector today is one of the most robust humanitarian sectors. The amount of conventions, resolutions, uh, Security Council, Human Rights Council, political, local, constitutional frameworks and, uh, and initiatives in support of protection rights are massive. It's uncomparable to any other humanitarian sector in terms of body of law and support. In terms of organizations, the number of organizations that have a protection mandate is, is quite impressive. 
from child protection to protection of civilians to rights-related issues to displaced people and so on. So the number of dedicated experts, staff, budget, time, uh, technical know-how on protection issues is, is phenomenal. Yet, today, uh, we're still stuck in this mentality of uh, nagging. Uh, that we are underfunded and that we are underrepresented and no one is raising our issues. And I think we we might be underfunded and things need to be raised more and uh, and we need to, to get closer to our goals. But our approach should move and resemble more to us. We embody a can-do attitude uh, that has to reflect the way we present ourselves. We are on the table, we are recognized, and yes, we need to push forward, but we're not no longer an underdog outsider that needs to fight for the space. Uh, we own the space, let's lead. Well, that's a fantastic um, message to finish with, but is there anything else you want to say, William, or is that, do you want to, uh, do you want to finish there? I, I want to, to, to end by, uh, uh, by saying uh, one of my biggest learning uh, in engaging with, uh, with people stuck and fleeing from conflicts and disasters is that uh, the individuals I've met have lost uh, a lot, sometimes everything, but they haven't lost their story. And we as humanitarians, as protection actors, we, we can give them a lot, but we should never ever contribute to them losing their story. That story should be told. The silence about what happened to them should never reign. And that we should never be part of in letting the silence reign. And we should always, always tell the truth Sometimes loud, sometimes in whisper. I get that, but never let the silence reign. William, that is a, an inspirational uh, way to end, and it's been an absolute honour and, and pleasure to talk to you. Um, good luck in your next stage. You're going to be a very hard act to follow, I imagine. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Duncan, and uh, it was a pleasure to have this conversation.